This is the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 2, Episode 5, The Geography of the Region Known as Mesopotamia. Last week, I worked through the creation story presented in Genesis chapters 1 through 3. If you missed it, you really should go back and give it a listen. Within that episode, several geographic points were mentioned. In Genesis chapter 2, verses 11, 13, and 14, four rivers are mentioned. The first is the Pishon, then the Gion, followed by the Tigris, and finally the Euphrates. Also within the verses are the regions called Havilah, Cush, and Assyria. It is these geographic areas that are the focus of this podcast. So let's get started. In Genesis, the Pishon River is described as encircling the entire land of Havilah. Despite Genesis describing it more than any of the other three rivers, Pishon has never been clearly found. It is briefly mentioned together with the Tigris in the Old Testament book, The Wisdom of Sirach, in chapter 24. This book is canonical to Catholics and the Eastern Orthodox Church. But it is not part of the Jewish canon, and due to this, most Protestant churches exclude it as well. The book states, quoting from the New Revised Standard Version, All this is due to the Book of the Covenant of the Most High God, the law that Moses commanded us as an inheritance for the congregations of Jacob. It overflows, like the Pishon, with wisdom, and like the Tigris at the time of the first fruits. It runs over, like the Euphrates, with understanding, and like the Jordan at harvest time. It pours forth instruction like the Nile, like the Gion at the time of vintage. The first man did not know wisdom fully, nor will the last one fathom her. For her thoughts are more abundant than the sea, and her counsel deeper than the great abyss. End quote. Of course, this reference throws no more light on the location of the river. The Jewish-Roman historian Flavius Josephus in the first century AD identified the Pishon with the Ganges, which flows through present-day India and Bangladesh. This seems a bit unlikely as the distance from the general area to the Ganges is close to 1,000 miles or about 1,600 kilometers. Not to mention that the book of Genesis states that all four rivers originate in the same place. But, and it took me a while to realize this, the book of Genesis never says how large the Garden of Eden is. So when someone mentions that it could be this river or that, do not immediately rule it out due to the small size of Eden in your imagination. The medieval French rabbi Rashi in the 11th century identified the Pishon with the Nile. This seems more likely than the Ganges, but still is uncertain and does not address the location of the headwaters issue. Some early modern scholars of the 18th and 19th centuries believed Eden's source river was a region of springs. Specifically, it was believed that the Pishon and the Gion were mountain streams. I'll get to the Gion in a minute. The Pishon may have been the Rioni, a river that originates in the Caucasus Mountains of the country of Georgia and flows into the Black Sea. Or it could have been the Araxes, another river that originates in the Caucasus and flows through present-day Turkey, Armenia, Azerbaijan, and Iran. It eventually drains into the landlocked Caspian Sea. A little sidebar about the Caucasus region. The Caucasus is a region at the border of Europe and Asia, situated between the Black and Caspian Seas. It is home to the Caucasus Mountains, which contain Europe's highest mountain, Mount Elbrus, at over 18,000 feet, or close to 6,000 meters. In our current world, the Caucasus region is further separated into northern and southern regions. The southern region consists of independent sovereign states, such as Armenia, Azerbaijan, and Georgia, 
as well as parts of Iran and Turkey. The northern parts are part of the Russian Federation and include Chechnya. Many of these are locations you will hear about in the daily news, and now you know just a little more about them. Also, what do we call people from the Caucasus region? Well, quite simply, they are Caucasians. Now you know where that word comes from. And back to the rivers. James A. Sauer, former curator of the Harvard Semitic Museum, made an argument from geology and history that the Pishon referred to what is now the Wadi Bisha, a dry channel which begins in the Hijja Mountains in southwestern present-day Saudi Arabia. It flows northeast to Kuwait. The Pishon has also been identified with the Zarini Rud, placing the region of Havilah in the northeast of Mesopotamia, in present-day Kurdistan, Azerbaijan, and Iran. This river is known locally as the Golden River. Along its course, it meanders between ancient gold mines and loads of lapis, a deep blue precious stone, before feeding into the Caspian Sea. These minerals align with the ones associated with the land of Havilah in Genesis. As a note, the word Havilah refers to both a land and people in several books of the Bible. Havilah is mentioned in Genesis chapter 2 verses 10 and 11 as being the place where there is gold and that gold is good. I would guess that the good phrase means that it requires little refining or perhaps is easy to mine. There is also bdellium and onyx stone. Bdellium is a semi-transparent oleogum resin currently found in trees growing from North Africa to Central Asia. Bdellium is used in perfumes, as incense, and in traditional medicine. However, given that it was mentioned with gold and onyx, some believe that what Genesis was referring to was not this resin, but was instead a precious stone, maybe even pearls. Onyx is, of course, a semi-precious stone of many colors, and usually with bands of black or white. It is found throughout the region, and really throughout the world. Note that there are three things of value mentioned, similar to the three gifts brought by the Magi. In addition to the region being described in chapter 2 of Genesis, two individuals named Havilah are listed in the Table of Nations, which lists the descendants of Noah. I'll get to that part of the book in a few episodes. The region is also mentioned in Genesis chapter 25, verse 18, as a land in the Arabian desert, where it defines the territory inhabited by the Ishmaelites as being from Havilah to Shur, which is opposite Egypt in the direction of Assyria. It was mentioned again in 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 7, which states that King Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. Outside the Bible, the land of Havilah is mentioned in Pseudophilo as the source of the precious jewels that the Amorites used in fashioning their idols in the days after Joshua, when Kenza was judge over the Israelites. Another tradition found in the literature of Clement, allegedly made by the Pope of the same name in the first century AD, states that in the early days after the Tower of Babel, the children of Havilah built a city and kingdom, which was near to those of his brothers. The region in Genesis is sometimes associated with either the Arabian Peninsula or northwestern Yemen, but in the work by Juris Zarens, an archaeology professor at Missouri State University, the Hejiz Mountains appear to satisfactorily meet description. This region is in the west of present-day Saudi Arabia. It is bordered on the west by the Red Sea, on the north by Jordan, and on the east by Naj, and on the south by Assur. Its main city is Jeddah, but it is probably better known for the Islamic holy cities of Mecca and Medina. The Hejaz includes what has been called the Cradle of Gold at Ma'ad ad-Dahab, the Cradle of Gold 
is the leading gold mining area in the Arabian Peninsula. It is located in the Al Medina province in the Hejaz region of Saudi Arabia. Gold is thought to have been first mined in Arabia around 3000 BC. Some believe that this area on the Arabian Peninsula is the location of the gold mentioned in Genesis. Research by archaeologists from the U.S. indicate that the Pishon River may now be a dried-up riverbed that once flowed 600 miles northeast from the area of the Hejaz in the same time period. The site has also been possibly identified as being King Solomon's gold mine. In this area, geologists have found a vast abandoned gold mine. Among their finds are huge quantities of waste rock, estimated at a million tons, left by ancient miners, some still containing traces of gold. Thousands of stone hammers and grindstones, used to extract the gold from the ore, litter the mine slopes. Gold is mined to this day in the region. Next is the Gion River. The name Gion may be interpreted from the Hebrew language as bursting forth, gushing. The Gion is described as encircling the entire land of Cush, spelled with a C, in the New Revised Standard Version. Cush was also the name of the eldest son of Ham, son of Noah. So this reference may point out that the Gion encircled the land that, at the time the passage was written, was inhabited by Cush's descendants. It has been argued that the land of Cush may have been located on either side or both sides of the Red Sea. As such, Cush is alternatively identified in scripture with the Arabian Peninsula. But there is no current river that encircles any of this area. Other sources associate the name Cush with Ethiopia. Ethiopians have long identified the Gion with the Blue Nile, which roughly encircles the former kingdom of Gajam. From a current geographic standpoint, this would seem impossible. Since two of the other rivers said to issue out of Eden, the Tigris and the Euphrates, are in Mesopotamia. First century Jewish historian Josephus associated the Gion with the Nile. The Gion has also been associated with the Araxes, previously mentioned as being a possible Pishon too. Last, there is the Oxus River of Turkey and Central Asia, and it flows north into the Aral Sea. It, too, does not encircle any land. In fact, now that I think about it, it would be impossible for a river to completely encircle a large piece of land. How would it flow? That was probably just figurative language. Another proposed idea is that the Gion no longer exists, or has significantly altered its course since the topography of the area has supposedly been altered by the Great Flood. That could make sense, after all. Rivers are continually changing their courses, some through natural events and others due to man-made intervention. After all, the Chicago River now flows in the opposite direction than it did 150 years ago. As for Cush, besides Ethiopia, there are several possible locations for this area. First there is Kish, spelled K-I-S-H, which was an ancient city in Sumer, in Mesopotamia, thought to have been located in modern-day Iraq, roughly 8 miles or 12 kilometers east of Babylon, and 50 miles or 80 kilometers south of Baghdad. The next river mentioned in Genesis was that of the Tigris. The Tigris is the eastern portion of the two great rivers that define Mesopotamia, the other being the Euphrates. The river flows south from the mountains of present-day southeastern Turkey through Iraq and empties into the Persian Gulf. Unlike the previous two rivers, we're nearly certain of the location of this one. The Tigris is 1,150 miles, or about 1,850 kilometers long, rising in the Taurus Mountains of eastern Turkey about 19 miles or 30 kilometers from the headwaters of the Euphrates. This certainly corresponds with the account in Genesis. 
For perspective, the Tigris is about 200 miles longer than that of the Ohio River in the U.S. Before flowing into the Persian Gulf, currently the Tigris combines with the Euphrates about 120 miles inland from the Gulf. But, according to Pliny in the 1st century AD, and other ancient historians, the Euphrates originally had its outlet into the sea separate from that of the Tigris. This should not come as too much of a surprise as we have seen, even in recent history, how rivers change courses. The modern city of Baghdad, Iraq, stands on the banks of the Tigris. The port city of Basra straddles the confluence of the Tigris and Euphrates at the Persian Gulf. In ancient times, many of the great cities of Mesopotamia stood on or near the Tigris, drawing water from it to irrigate the civilization of the Sumerians. Notable Tigris-side cities include Nineveh, Tesfan, and Seleucia, while the city of Lagash was irrigated by the Tigris via canal dug around 2400 BC. The original Sumerian name for the river was the Adigna, probably meaning running water, which can be interpreted as the swift river compared to its neighbor, the Euphrates, whose slower flow caused it to deposit more silt and build up a higher bed than that of the Tigris. Also, the Tigris has historically been notoriously prone to flood following the melting of the snow in the Turkish mountains. The Tigris is also mentioned in the Book of Daniel, where Daniel was standing on its banks and had a vision of a great man who spoke to him. The river was again mentioned in the Deuterocanonical books of Tobit, Judith, as well as Sirach. Last, there is the Euphrates, which is the longest and one of the most historically important rivers of Western Asia. Originating in eastern Turkey, the Euphrates flows through Syria and Iraq. Its course runs about 1,900 miles or 3,000 kilometers. This is about 300 miles shorter than that of the Mississippi River. Earliest references to the Euphrates come from the cuneiform text found in Shurapak and pre-Sargonic Nupur in southern Iraq and date to the mid-3rd millennia BC. In these texts, written in Sumerian, the Euphrates is called the Buranuna. Surprisingly, the area of the Euphrates was at one time the home to a variety of wild animals. The Neo-Assyrian palace reliefs from the first millennium BC depict lion and bull hunts in fertile landscapes. 16th to 19th century European travelers in the Syrian Euphrates basin reported on an abundance of animals living in the area, many of which have since become extinct. Species like gazelle and the now-extinct Arabian ostrich lived in the steppe bordering the Euphrates Valley, while the valley itself was home to the wild boar and carnivorous species including the gray wolf, the golden jackal, the red fox, the leopard, and the lion. The Syrian brown bear can be found in the mountains of southeast Turkey. Presence of European beaver has been attested in the bone assemblage of a prehistoric site in Syria, but the beaver has never been sighted in historical times. So the two rivers, the Tigris and the Euphrates, leads us to the region known as Mesopotamia. Mesopotamia is an ancient Greek word meaning between the rivers. The oldest known occurrence of the name Mesopotamia dates to the 4th century BC, when it was used to designate the land east of the Euphrates in north Syria. In modern times, it has been more generally applied to all the lands between the Euphrates and the Tigris, thereby incorporating not only parts of Syria, but also almost all of Iraq and some of southeastern Turkey. A further distinction is usually made between Upper or Northern Mesopotamia and Lower or Southern Mesopotamia. Upper Mesopotamia is also known as the Jezera, and it is the area between the Euphrates and the Tigris from their sources down to Baghdad. 
Lower Mesopotamia is the area from Baghdad to the Persian Gulf. In modern scientific usage, the term Mesopotamia also often has chronological connotation. In modern Western historiography of the region, the term Mesopotamia is usually used to designate the area from the beginning of time until the Muslim conquest in the 630s AD, with the names Iraq and Jezera being used to describe the region after that event. The early occupation of the Euphrates Basin was limited to its upper reaches, that is, the area that is widely known as the Fertile Crescent. I'll explore the Fertile Crescent more in future episodes. Prehistoric stone tools have been found in the Sajur Basin, part of a river system that flows into the upper Euphrates. As a note, the word prehistoric simply refers to events occurring before written history. In the Taurus Mountains, in the upper part of the Syrian Euphrates Valley, early permanent villages were established several thousand years BC. In the absence of irrigation, these early farming communities were limited to areas where rain-fed agriculture was possible, that is, the upper parts of the Syrian Euphrates as well as Turkey. Later Neolithic villages, characterized by the introduction of pottery in the early 7th millennium BC, are known throughout this area. Occupation of Lower Mesopotamia is thought to have started in the 6th millennium BC, and is generally associated with the introduction of irrigation, as rainfall in this area is largely insufficient for agriculture. Evidence of irrigation has been found at several sites dating to this period. Also, farmers in southern Mesopotamia had to protect their land from flooding each year, except in northern Mesopotamia, which had just enough rain to make some farming possible. To protect against the spring floods, they built levees. During the 5th millennium BC, also known as the Late Ubaid period, northeastern Syria was dotted by small villages, with some of them growing to a size over 25 acres. In Iraq, sites like Uridu and Ur were occupied during the Ubaid period. Clay boat models found at Tel Mashnika along the Kobar indicate that riverine transport was practiced during this period. The Uruk period, roughly coinciding with the 4th millennium BC, saw the emergence of truly urban settlements across Mesopotamia. Cities like Tel Barak and Uruk grew to over 250 acres in size and displayed advancing agriculture. The spread of southern Mesopotamian pottery, architecture, and other artifacts far into Turkey and Iran has generally been interpreted as the reflection of a widespread trade system aimed at providing the Mesopotamian cities with raw materials. From roughly 3600 to 2300 BC, southern Mesopotamia experienced a growth in the number and size of settlements, suggesting strong population growth. These settlements, including Sumero-Akkadian sites like Supper, Uruk, Adab, and Kish, were organized into competing city-states. Many of these cities were located along canals of the Euphrates and the Tigris that have since dried up, but that can be still identified using remote sensing imagery. A similar development took place in Upper Mesopotamia, Subertu, and Assyria, although only from the mid-3rd millennium BC, and on a smaller scale than in Lower Mesopotamia. Large parts of the Euphrates Basin were for the first time united under a single ruler during the Akkadian Empire in the mid-2nd millennium BC, and the Uruk Empire, which controlled either directly or indirectly through vassals, large parts of modern-day Iraq and northeastern Syria. Following their collapse, the old Assyrian Empire from about 1975 to 1750 BC asserted its power over northeast Syria and northern Mesopotamia. While southern Mesopotamia was controlled by city-states like Isin, Kish, and Larsa, 
before their territories were absorbed by the newly emerged state of Babylonia under Hammurabi in the early mid-18th century BC. In the second half of the second millennium BC, the Euphrates Basin was divided between Kassite Babylon in the south and Matina Assyria and the Hittite Empire in the north, with the Middle Assyrian Empire from about 1365 to 1020 BC eventually eclipsing the Hittites, Mitanni, and Kassite Babylonians. Following the end of the Middle Assyrian Empire in the late 11th century BC, struggles broke out between Babylonia and Assyria over control of the Iraqi Euphrates Basin. Later, the Neo-Assyrian Empire eventually emerged victorious out of this conflict and also succeeded in gaining control of the northern Euphrates Basin in the first half of the first millennium BC. The Assyrians, Babylonians, and other societies will be covered in much more detail in over several episodes as we work our way through the Old Testament. The geography of each area and the natural resources found there, of course, impact the ways that people lived. Northern Mesopotamia is made up of hills and plains. The land is quite fertile due to the seasonal rains and the rivers and streams flowing from the mountains. Early settlers farmed the land and used timber, metals, and stone from the nearby mountains. This vast flat area, the modern Jezera, is about 250 miles or 400 kilometers in length and is interrupted only by a single limestone mountain range rising abruptly out of the plain and branching off from the Zagros Mountains. There are numerous remains of old cities that demonstrate how the land was once populated, though now it is mostly a wilderness. North of the plateau rises well-watered rolling hills, which lead to low ranges of limestone hills, sometimes arid and occasionally forested with dwarf oak, and often shutting in rich plains and fertile valleys, between the northern and northeastern flank and the primary mountain line from which they detach themselves. Between them tower the massive ridges of the Euphrates and Zagros ranges, where the Tigris and Euphrates originate, which cut off Assyria from Armenia and Kurdistan. The name Assyria itself was derived from that of the city of Assur, modernly referred to as Kela Shurgrat, on the right bank of the Tigris, midway between the greater and lesser Zab rivers, both tributaries to the Tigris. It remained the capital long after the Assyrians had become the dominant power in Western Asia, but was finally supplanted by Kela, Nineveh, and Dura-Zargana, some 60 miles or 97 kilometers further north. It is generally in this area, Upper Mesopotamia, where the current conflict between the Iraqis, Syrians, Turks, and numerous outside countries and ethnic groups, and ISIS, is being fought. Southern Mesopotamia is made up of marshy areas and wide, flat, barren plains. Cities developed along the rivers which flow through the region. Early settlers had to irrigate the land along the banks of the rivers in order for their crops to grow. Since they did not have many natural resources, contact with neighboring lands in the form of trade was vitally important. In contrast with the arid plateau of northern Mesopotamia, stretched the rich alluvial plain of southern Mesopotamia. The rich soil was formed by the deposits of the two great rivers that mostly encircled it. To the east were the mountains of Elam. Southward were the sea marshes and the Aramaic tribes, while on the west, the civilization of Babylonia encroached beyond the banks of the Euphrates, upon the territory of the Semitic nomads. In this region was Ur, the earliest capital of the country. Also in this area was Babylon, while its suburbs occupied the west and southern sides of the river. 
What is thought to have been the primitive seaport of the country, Eridu, was just south of Ur. It is now about 130 miles or 210 kilometers inland from the Persian Gulf, as about 46 vertical inches of soil have been laid down by the silting from the two rivers. At least, this is the amount that has formed since the founding of the legendary port of Sphastinus Shirax in the time of the Greek Alexander the Great. This port is located in present-day Kuwait. The silting of Eridu amounts to about 115 horizontal feet, or 35 meters, a year. It's completely amazing to me that all of that silt washing down these two rivers could move the shore that far in about 6,000 years. But the math makes sense. The marshes in the south, like the adjoining desert, were frequented by Aramaic tribes. The combined flows of the Euphrates and Tigris as they passed through the marshes were known to the Babylonians as the Salt River, a name they perhaps originally applied to the Persian Gulf. The alluvial plain of Babylonia was where the Bedouins pastured the flocks of their Babylonian masters. In this plain, a dense population appeared, owing primarily to an elaborate irrigation system. The area, as originally formed, was an uninhabitable swamp, teeming with the usual pest of such an area. But, the reclamation forged by the early settlers made it the most fertile country in the world, at least for its time. Such was the so-called First Agricultural Revolution. This knowledge of irrigation and engineering seemed to have been first developed in Babylonia, which was covered by a network of canals all deftly planned and seemingly well-regulated. The three primary canals carried off the waters of the Euphrates to the Tigris above Babylon, all helping to establish cities whose names we recognize today, such as Fallujah, Tel Ibrahim, and Opus. Owing primarily to the system of irrigation and the advancing knowledge of agriculture, it has been estimated that the growing of wheat resulted in a 200-300 fold return to the sower. They not only reaped what they sowed, but learned to reap much more of it. Once again, according to Pliny the Elder, the first century Roman writer, the grain was harvested twice per year, and even after the second harvest, the land proved to be suitable for the grazing of sheep. Barossus, a third century BC Babylonian writer, wrote that wheat, sesame, barley, orchids, palms, apples, and many kinds of shelled fruit grew wild, as wheat still does in the Iraqi town of Anna. By the way, I wouldn't recommend visiting that town for the wild fruits or grains as it has been controlled by ISIS since 2014. Amanius Marcellinus, a 4th century AD Roman soldier and historian, wrote that from the point reached by Julian's armies to the shores of the Persian Gulf was one continuous forest of lushness. Not exactly what I envision when I think of that area of the world. And all of that should give you some sense of what the lay of the land is in this historic area of the world and help to set the scene for the history to follow. So that's the episode for this week. Join me next week when I'll expand out a bit geographically and cover the Fertile Crescent as well as the climate of the region. Also, I'll give a brief summary into the human history within the region before covering each civilization one at a time. And for a programming note, from day one, the podcast has been on iTunes and obviously is hosted by Blueberry. But now, given the size of the episode library and the audience that's been built... It can also be found on Stitcher. There will be more locations to follow, and as those are arranged, I'll let you know. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. 
Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. You can also find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. And if you're so inclined, visit the Facebook page and give it a like. Doing so will help others find this podcast. Thanks for listening and have a great week. Thank you.